these knees. I, I don't know whether I should explain that or not. I ran over myself with a four-wheeler. As Forrest Gump said, stupid is as stupid does. I wasn't even on the thing. It, uh, I was going up a real rocky, steep ravine, and I got it tire stuck in the rock, so I thought, well, I don't want to back up because it might go over backward on me. So I said, I'll get off and just give it a little bit of gas and see if it'll back out of there, and then I'll hit the brake. So I gave a little gas, and it didn't come, so I gave it just a little bit more, and it came all at once. And uh, since I'd leaned over it, instead of going around it to get to the gas, it knocked me backward when it came back, and my legs went up under it, and there was nothing under my knees, so it ran over both knees, and I heard a loud pop, and things were not the same. Then I had to lay there two hours before somebody came, because the four-wheeler went on down the hill and turned over on its side, and I couldn't get up, so... Uh, I waited two hours till somebody came help me get in the pickup, but <clears throat> you think you got trouble. So anyway, I don't stand too long too well. It's uh, getting where I can kind of shuffle forward pretty well, but if there's any pressure to the side on the knee, it's uh, or either one of them actually is pretty bad. Anyway, enough about me, but... Uh, I think it's been now actually three weeks since I spoke and I started into a section on honoring God as our Father. And you may recall uh, just briefly that that is an honor that has, was not bestowed upon mankind right away. Uh, Adam and Eve knew Him as God, as the Creator. Uh, they did not know Him in any other way. He was the lawgiver and the Master. And when they didn't do what he said, he came and chided them for it. And in fact, in the Old Testament, not until it is mentioned to David, did God ever mention fatherhood to mankind. And it was only really after that, in terms of prophecy, about later on, that he spoke of himself as father to mankind. He said he would be a father to Israel. We'll see some of those today. But it was projecting forward. It was not necessarily at that time. And in fact, Christ married Christ. And it was more of a, uh, a marriage relationship. And of course, that ended in divorce because of Israel not being what she should have been as a wife. So this thing of fatherhood is not something that has been offered just to everyone. And I say that because we need to grasp what a special privilege that is to have the Creator, the Almighty, the Living God, address us and say, call me Father. Even friendship was not offered much. Only two cases, I don't remember whether I went through those uh, last time or not, but in Isaiah 41, uh, it talks about how Abraham was addressed by God as his friend. And it says there in uh, Exodus 33:11 that he spoke to Moses face to face as one would a friend. He didn't come right out even and call Moses a friend there, but said he spoke to him as you would one. But he did call Abraham friend. Uh, he did not offer that to mankind as a whole. 
until the New Testament. And he did not even then offer it to mankind as a whole, but only to those disciples who would follow him. Uh, we read of that at the Passover, where it says, I'll talk to you as friends. And he offered friendship to us as a New Testament church. So fatherhood and friendship are not something that are taken lightly with God. And if he's offered either of those to us, uh, then that puts us in a special category uh, reserved only for a few, and not to the whole world at this time. Well, let's look into it a little bit more, because we are told in Malachi 1, verse 6, that God is not happy and wants to be honored both as a master and as a father. Uh, and that is written to the end-time church and to the priest, the ministry, and the members of the end-time church, particularly to the ministry. But it includes everyone there. So this is something that needs to be addressed, and it does say that in the end-time, one would have to turn the hearts of the Father to the children and the children to the fathers. And I think I've brought out many times that that is not just in a physical family relationship, but our relationship to our Father in Heaven is the most important one that needs to be addressed. And our relationship to our fathers of the past, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and so on, is the second most important fatherhood, sonship to be considered. And then thirdly, the physical relationship between fathers and sons on this earth. But if you don't get the first two right, you don't have a prayer of getting the third category right. Because our fathers of the flesh have been less than our Father in heaven in terms of their relationship with their children. And we either are too soft on them, or we're too hard on them, or we don't find the right balance, or we don't understand the role of a father in the way that we should. So if we study God and His relationship to His children... <clears throat> then that should help us in getting it right here physically. I want to start today in Psalm 103. It does mention uh, God as Father uh, a little later in the chapter, but I want to begin at the beginning of this chapter because it's leading up to that. And it gives some of the uh, things about fatherhood that are important for us to grasp and to understand. Now, David had been addressed by God uh, and put in the role of a son to a father. So when David writes in the Psalms, he is very aware of that relationship. And, of course, the Psalms themselves are prophetic, and they have much to do with the end-time church, early New Testament church as well, but even more particularly with the end-time church. So, here is the way that David approached his Father in heaven. He says, Bless the Eternal, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. So, we heard in the sermonette today that loyalty to God is a very important key to where we need to be. And David expresses that kind of loyalty and that kind of devotion to God here. Everything that is in me. Give blessing to God. Bless the Eternal, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. So, we are to look upon Him, as fathers we'll see shortly, and remember all the benefits that He offers us. 
the opportunities, who forgives all your iniquities. A father should forgive the mistakes, the iniquities, the sins, the broken rules of the children and not hold them against them and hold a grudge against them as some parents do. Once it's done, once it's fixed, once it's finished, you forget it and move on. How can you judge your child by what he used to be and look upon him when he's 12 or 13 or 25 as if he was three? But sometimes parents do that and, and hold it against a child. He forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. God casts himself here as a God who forgives and also as a, an eternal loving physician who heals all our diseases. Now we look at ourselves and say, well, why aren't I fixed? Why aren't all my diseases, all my problems healed? That is a legitimate, valid question. Why don't we have all of our problems solved and gone? Both spiritual and physical healing. Well, Christ often said, according to your faith, be it unto you. And if we do not have those benefits, that means that we do not trust God completely, totally, and walk in faith. We fall short of that in some form or fashion. Now, at times, for his own purposes, he does all kinds of healings of people who do not or did not even really understand much about God. Uh, Christ did when he was on the earth. Uh, he did in Acts 2 on Pentecost. Healed all kinds of people who did not really know God. It was for a particular reason to show his glory. But in day-to-day -day life, when individuals came, they had to believe that it would happen. If there's doubt in our minds, then that casts doubt on whether it's going to occur or not. Now, he has promised us that he would turn his face back to us when we turn to him with our whole heart, the kind of loyalty that he deserves, needs, and wants. And I dare say we have not accomplished that as yet, because these things have not yet happened. We still have work to do. Now, Paul raised the dead, but Paul did not have every disease and every problem physically that he had healed either, did he? He besought God three times about one affliction he had, probably in his eyes and his, his looks and his ability to see. And God said, no, Paul, I'm doing this so that others might look to God and be humbled. People say, well, he left that, that on Paul so that he would be humbled. No, that's not the way he put it. It said so that others might be humbled that the leadership that they looked to was not by any means perfect and was not healed either. So, while there's a general statement here that God is certainly capable of healing all our diseases, uh, He makes exceptions, both in not healing at times for His own purposes, in humbling, in teaching, and in some cases because of lack of belief on our part. 
So, in any general statement in the Bible, you have to examine the other scriptures to understand the ramifications and the conditions that are involved, and sometimes what God might or might not do based on his specific purposes at the moment. So, while Psalm 103, verse 3, is very important to us and gives us God's overall attitude and what he wishes to do for us, it does not explain what some of the other scriptures do, which indicate the conditions that must be met. Those are explained in other places. But this is an overall promise of God's purpose, his will, and his capacity. And then if all other conditions are met, uh, these things will happen. So you have to take not just this one statement, but all other statements about this particular subject in order to understand the various ramifications that might apply in a particular time. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Who redeems your life from destruction. So this is a general statement here of God's intents and purposes for us. He's willing to forgive our sins as we repent of them. He is willing to heal our diseases as conditions are met. Who redeems your life from destruction. So he offers redemption here as well, doesn't he? To redeem us out of this world and out of the ultimate destruction of the flesh. But there are many, many other scriptures which indicate that which is necessary for us to be redeemed. How obedience and trust and faith and various things are necessary for that to be accomplished. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy. He wishes to put a crown of of kindness on our heads and show tender mercy to us. That is his overall attitude and approach. And yet when we have sinned egregiously, as the church did, (coughs) excuse me, I have just a little bit of a tickle from a cold. The cold is gone, but... Straining the voice leads to problems as well. So I'll try not to yell much today. Anyway, he wishes to show loving kindness to us, and yet he says temporarily he's turned his face, but then he makes several statements about how when we repent and turn to him, he will turn his face back to us and smile and show the kindness that, it is, his, that is his desire and purpose. So how does that then affect us as human beings with our children? Well, we want to show kindness and mercy and love to our children, don't we? And be nice to do that and have peace at all times. And a loving, kind relationship and friendship with our children. It doesn't always work that way, however, does it? Uh, There are bumps in the road. There are problems with attitudes both with parent and with child. And there are times when we cannot be friends with our children, just as God rarely can be friends with mankind. The respect, the obedience, the parent-child relationship has to be in place, otherwise friendship is not a possibility. So conditions have to be met. Who satisfies your mouth with good things, as a father would to a child physically, So that your youth is renewed like the eagle. We don't like to see our children hurt. We don't like to see them crippled. 
we like to see them full of energy and, and, and capacity to live life. The eternal executes righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. So if we are oppressed by man, if we are oppressed by conditions, then he has the answer to that ultimately when that oppression is going to be removed. And he says that for a time here we're going to be oppressed, aren't we? We'll be persecuted ultimately. Uh, we aren't much yet, but it's coming. And things like just happen with this Yahoo that was talking about the rapture occurring today does not help the cause of any kind of Christianity and certainly not true Christianity in any way, fashion, or form because it looks, makes it look like anyone who is a Christian, so-called, is nuts, is what it makes it look like. And a lot of people took that seriously. I tried to tell a Mexican I've been working with some that uh, no, there's too many things that the Bible says has to happen before that could, any kind of a return of Christ could occur. I didn't mention rapture, but so many things that have to happen. But he couldn't see that because he's all tied up with the emotion and is on his way to Mexico now. He was hoping to be there in time to get raptured with his family. Now, there's some anomalies here, aren't there? Doesn't, don't they always call it the secret rapture? It's supposed to happen secretly, suddenly. And yet here you announce it months ahead of time and put it on billboards and talk about it and get everybody all excited about a secret. Secret implies secret to me. And yet this was proclaimed the day and the hour and the time, even the, the hour even. And the Bible says clearly that is not to be the case. Uh, but people get sucked in by this thing. And then when it doesn't happen... When the things of God that the book actually say will happen, start to happen, people won't believe that either. Because they will have already become so sarcastic and disbelieving and making jokes about it that they won't take it seriously when it is serious. So, um, I should not go there. We need to go here. But God does want to remove the oppression and show righteousness and judgment. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. Didn't he? He delivered them, their cries of oppression in Egypt. He delivered them out of it. Uh, and then they thought they were going to be killed at the sea. And he delivered them from that. And then they thought they were going to die of hunger and thirst. And he delivered them from that. Well, he took care of them all the way through. But they took it for granted, as often we do when our parents try to take care of us. We take them for granted. The Eternal is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. We should deal with our children patiently. We should even chasten them in patience, not in anger and flying off the handle. Uh, that isn't the right way to do it. That isn't the way God does it. He will not always chasten or chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He gets over it. He doesn't hold grudges. We sometimes hold grudges on ourselves, and we remember things we might have done 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 80 years ago, and uh, we have trouble forgiving ourselves maybe, but God doesn't remember them. He forgets about them. We try to remember each other's. Well, we're not being like God when we do that either. 
He has not dealt with us after or according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. The wages of sin is death, and if we got what we deserved, we'd all be dead now. We wouldn't be sitting here. Uh, We need to realize and comprehend and grasp that, that we're only even alive by the grace of God and by His mercy today. Do we, do we grasp that, that none of us here deserves to be alive today? And that by law, we should all be dead, except those few of you who have not sinned. And I don't see any, you know. We all have. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we deserve death. Why did we mess up God's universe? By being selfish and doing what we wanted to do instead of what he says to do. And only by his grace and mercy do we breathe today. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. All mankind would have to die if Christ had not sacrificed himself that we might live. But God gave up his eternal life for us. And he was tempted in all points like as we are. Some people don't believe that clear statement of the Bible, but that's a fact. You can't imagine God being tempted like humans are, I guess, for some reason. Maybe it's our Protestant background or Catholic or whatever it is about God, but... When he was made flesh, he had every desire and want to that the flesh has. And yet he never gave in once. And we give in continually. Thankfully, his mercy endures forever. At what point would you throw your kids away? Well, Well, this one's been bad. Throw it away. Throw the baby out with the diaper. They say bath water, but diaper might be a better one there. Well, when does God throw us out? He doesn't. Unless we just are absolutely incorrigible and there's no other choice. He wants to save us. It's His good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Just as we want to take care of our children, there is that natural desire within us to care for our children. Unless we're truly, truly warped. And a few are. But we understand God partly by our relationship with our own children that we love. And we understand our children partly by getting our relationship, according to the Bible, with God himself. So as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And that's interminable. It goes forever, east from west. Like as a father pities his children... So the Eternal pities them that fear Him. So His pity, His mercy, His kindness is there, but it is not going to be there unless we fear Him. He is not going to show pity on this sin-sick world, is He? He's going to basically destroy it very shortly. And He's going to kill at least 90% of the people who live on the face of this earth. He's not going to show pity. That's why he tells us to pray that we be worthy, or accounted worthy, we won't be worthy, but be accounted worthy to escape these things. That he will include us in his pity. The fear of 
God is the beginning of wisdom. We're going to get wise and begin to fear God who can kill us, who can wipe us out, and indeed is going to wipe out most people. Now, he has a plan for them later in the second resurrection, uh, and he will restore them after they've been humbled through death, and then they will become obedient, and he will show pity at that time. But let's grasp that he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And Christ lived down here on this earth just like us, as one of us, and he is there as our mediator and high priest and the one that goes to bat for us and says, Father, I understand what that one is going through. I've been there. I had that same temptation, that same desire, that same feeling, that same attitude. And I know their frame. I know how they are. Please have mercy. I'm glad he's on our side. As for man, his days are as grass, and as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. That is stated in Isaiah 40 uh, as a major part of the message here at the end time. The mankind is about to be blown away and withered as the grass and as the flower. If you recall that, we went through it not long ago. It's stated here as well. But the mercy of the eternal is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. So, if we get our relationship with God right, then his mercy can extend on generation to generation because they do not have to suffer from the sins and the iniquities of the parents. And to whom is that mercy extended? To such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Not the hearers, but the doers, as James says, or Peter So there are conditions that have to be met. Even as our children, we would like to show mercy and love and forgiveness and tenderness to them. But they've got to keep the house rules, don't they? They've got to keep the rules of the father and the mother. If they don't, then what happens? Chastening occurs. And if we don't chasten them, God says we don't love them in Hebrews 12 and other places. I'll probably get to that. Well, in fact, we do right now. Let's go to Proverbs 3. I limited this study to the places where it talks about the father in relationship to the children. Uh, This could go on probably ad infinitum uh, if we talked about the son's relationship and the children's relationship to the parent. That is... That is mentioned many more times than the father to the child. But I wanted to honor God as father and take this from the standpoint of the father to the children so that we might understand the relationship coming down to us. Uh, Then our responses are in terms of the son. I don't know whether we'll get to that. We might at some time. But you could do a private study on it yourself. Just look up son and sons and sonship and so on uh, on whatever form of concordance you use, and you'll have studied for a long, long time uh, and what kind of son we ought to be. Uh, you know, sometimes we look at our Bible and say, what should I study? You know, it's a whole big thing there, and sometimes our study can get stale and we don't know what to study, 
there are so many things that we can study, uh, but you've got to think about it and get into it. Anyway, Psalm, uh, Proverbs 3. Uh, here's instruction from the Father. My son, forget not my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. That's where Psalm 103 left off, or at least where we left off reading it. So, keeping his rules is what keeps the relationship between father and son proper. If nobody's breaking the rules, then parents and children get along pretty good, don't they? It's when we as parents have rules for our children and they don't like the rules and break the rules, or want to break the rules at least, then is when contention comes between parent and child. So God says, if you want the relationship between father and son to be a proper relationship, let your heart keep my commandments. Not just your hands, but your heart. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to you. We will obey our parents. We will get along with them a whole lot better. And our God as well. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them about your neck and write them upon the table of your heart. So shall you find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Then he says, trust in the eternal with all your heart. We read that already in Psalm 103. And that is a continuing thing all the way through the Bible. Is that our heart be where it ought to be. Be with God. Not on the things of, of man and where our hearts tend to want to go. Lean not to your own understanding. I had somebody tell me recently that they just know what is right. They just always know what is right. Come on. No, we don't. Now, we may understand right from wrong to some degree by the culture around us and by, it says even the Gentiles can understand that there are certain levels of of uh, compliance that are necessary for a, a society to even exist, lest they murder each other. But there is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. So somebody tells me, well, I just always know what's right. Uh, I got scriptures that argue with that. Proverbs 14, 12, and 16, 25, I think it is. Our heart, our mind will not always make the right judgments. So he says, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Have we missed the boat somewhat by not spending enough time with our children when they were little to kindly, gently teach them all the ways of God and show them how there is benefit that comes from, from complying and doing what you're asked and doing what you're told and the Peace reigns instead of so much hassle and so much argument and frustration? Do we take the time to teach them cause and effect? Uh, if we did that in kindness and love and patience, took the time to do it, we might have less chastening to do later on. But instead of doing that, so often uh, we just... As they break the rules, we get mean and nasty with them, and the uh, peace is further violated because they didn't react to us in the right way, and then we don't react to them in the right way. 
So it just gets worse and worse. And most respect, either direction is gone by mid-teens and has to be rebuilt then over a period of time. There is a natural separation that occurs as a child grows up. And they are to leave father and mother and cleave to wife and start their own family. And we as parents need to understand that, and we need to teach the children when they are young that a separation is going to come. It's just like it takes us suddenly by surprise that they get two hormones working at once, and suddenly the whole thing blows up. It doesn't necessarily, I mean, yeah, there are going to be difficulties, but it doesn't necessarily have to get as extreme as it often does if the parent learned ahead of time how his relationship with God works properly and then imparts that to his children while they're small. The things he's studying and learning in God's Word, he then imparts to the children. Not necessarily always in, oh, here's another Bible study, but in instruction and gentle teaching and by example, how, you know, boy, I was thinking wrong and God sure smacked me on that one. Uh, And they could see, you know, I'm not being a hypocrite. I'm trying to obey God and I don't always do it. And sometimes things don't turn out the way that I wanted them to. And so you, when you break my rules, it doesn't always turn out the way you wanted it to. So we work with them and teach them day and night, God says, doesn't he? His ways. Teach them as they grow. And then, when you understand the natural separation is there, when they begin to get a little independent, you both by then would understand what is happening, and you both could deal with it on a more mature level. And things would maybe not be always smooth, but they wouldn't be as nasty as they sometimes get if everybody understood and knew how to approach things better. So, you know, maybe we have not done that in quite the way that God instructed us to, to teach them daily the ways of God and set an example of obedience to God and then see how God blesses us as parents. Uh, And then they can see that By obedience comes peace and harmony. Sure, there are things they don't want to do. They want to be doing what they want to do. You know what? They're just like us. God tells us, do this, this, this. And you say, well, I want to go do that, that, and that. I don't want to do what you're telling me. So, with parent to God and as child to parent, we got the same problem. The carnal mind is enmity to God. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Be not wise or important in your own eyes. Fear the eternal and depart from evil. It shall be health to your navel and marrow to your bones. You'll feel good from the inside out if you put God first in your life. That's the relationship we need to have. Honor the eternal with your substance. And with the first fruits of all your increase. Here he's talking about tithes and offerings, obviously physically. And he does say, Christ taught that where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. So, that is one of the key things when he mentions his honor. 
in Malachi, he goes on to explain. He says, well, how are we not honoring you? He says, well, in your tithes and your offerings you aren't. Uh, he brings it down immediately because in the New Testament then, Christ did say, uh, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. <coughs> so, so shall your barns be filled with plenty, and your presses shall burst out with new wine. Because we will receive blessings as we turn to God with our heart, and we show by keeping His Sabbath, keeping His laws, keeping His financial laws, that that's where our heart really is. My son, despise not the chastening of the eternal, neither be weary of His correction. So if we have Him foremost in our mind and in our heart, uh, then when we do make errors, uh, we are not to be upset at His chastening. We can pray, let your chastening be in measure, otherwise we die. <laughs> Show mercy on me, but we should appreciate the chastening that comes, because it helps straighten us out. Now, we are facing, right now, the whole church of God, in time, the last generation, we all here know, we are facing the chastening of the Eternal, who has turned His face from us after He spewed us out on the ground and scattered us and splintered us, and that continues apace. So we know that we're in this position. When will it be relieved? Because it frustrates us, doesn't it? Well, what's that frustration supposed to do? It's not supposed to turn our attitude sour. It's not supposed to cause us to turn in anger toward God or toward each other and begin to pound on our fellow servants, as Christ put it. But it's supposed to force us to our knees and force us to turn with our whole heart. So we should not despise it. We should be thankful for it. Thankful that God is not healing us the way that we want Him to. Thankful that He is not blessing us in the way we would like to be blessed. Thankful that He's not showering toys upon us, as a parent sometimes does, to appease us. Sometimes we, as parents, don't understand. So, boy, I'm not going to let my children go through what I went through. I'm going to give them everything they want, everything that they desire. I'll let them do what they wish. I'm going to let, make their lives be happy, happy all the time. That's the modern way with children. And it is not God's way. Now, He wants us to be happy, happy, yes. But it has to be according to His rules. And if we do not keep His rules, then all blessing, or most blessing, is removed. And chastening occurs. And then when we get in a right attitude, He says He will then restore all those blessings and everything will be happy, happy, joy, joy but not until. So we as parents fail when we go ahead and give in to our children when they do not have a compliant, loving, heart-toward-the-parent, humble, meek approach. If we are still pouting, we still feel misused and abused by church and God, instead of being thankful for the chastening that we have received. When 
God causes or allows things to happen to us, we should think about it and learn from it and then say, Thank you, Father, for helping straighten me out. And he is in the process of straightening the church out now. What does it say there in Hebrews 12? Let's, let's flip over there for a moment, since we're on this. This is fundamental, brethren. I know when we start talking about these things, parents roll their eyes sometimes, just as the children roll their eyes at the parents, and say, get off that. I know what I'm doing, and I'm doing fine. Yeah, sure you are. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 9. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them respect. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? True life comes from our Father in heaven. (coughs) For truly, for a few days, they chastened us after their own pleasure, according to what they thought was good and right and proper. And that runs a wide gamut with parents in today's world. But he, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. The reason he is chastening the church today, paddling us good, is so that we might be partakers of his holiness, to be a part of his kingdom someday. Now, he's already told us that in his kingdom there will be no liars, no thieves, no adulterers, no... Uh, disrespectful, all of his laws, all of his commandments. He says those won't be in his kingdom. No drunks, no gluttons, on and on it goes. Now, if we are or have any of those problems and more, that's just the ones that just pour out, lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, you know, on and on we could go. If we have those things within us, and that's the way our lives are going, God says we will not be part of his kingdom. There is a standard that must be met. Now, if we are going those other ways and allowing ourselves to be swept along by human nature and Satan's culture, we are headed into eternal death. So, he chastens us in many, many different ways to get us back on the right path. We want our children on the right path. We want them to be happy and healthy and, and their lives to be peaceful and joyous. But we have a problem in that they have carnal human nature and want to be selfish. And we have a problem in that we sometimes treat them out of our own selfishness because we don't want to have to deal with them. God is patient and merciful and loving, and yet He does chasten us. For a purpose, that we might become holy. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. What we have gone through in the church has not been pleasant at all. It's been very, very frustrating, confusing, difficult, and it still is. And God is still letting it happen and letting Satan do it to the church. So it doesn't seem joyous, but... Grievous. I don't remember when my dad came at me with that belt that it ever seemed joyous. It, it, it appeared to be quite grievous to me. Uh, always did. Never got better either. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields 
the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised or corrected thereby. So, chastening is there for the purpose of straightening out our attitude and our actions and getting us in compliance with the rules so that our relationship with our Father can be one of peace. And we need to understand that as parents, because we want to have a peaceful relationship between us and our children. Not contention, not argument, not disrespect either direction, but peace and joy and happiness in the family. That's what he would have us have. And yet, throughout this world, there is not much of that, is there? Well, that means that the world is not living according to God's ways, And if we do not have that in ours, then there's too much of the world and too much of Satan and too much human nature still running rampant and wild in us that is not being brought into subjection to God's rules because His rules impart peace. So, He is not going to let up on us, I'll guarantee you this, until we are thankful and respectful and loving humble, meek, and obedient to God, and have turned our whole heart toward Him. He is not going to let up until that happens. He says so in many, many places. Now, we as a parent must be implacable in the same way. Until that child changes his or her attitude and becomes meek, humble, respectful, obedient you have not finished your job. And if you let up before that happens, you're not being a proper parent. In fact, he goes on here to say that you do not love your child if you don't chasten them until they become peaceful and loving. If they still have a snotty, roll their eyes, slam the door, pout attitude, you have not done your job as a parent. God is not going to let up until we get rid of our pout, our selfishness, our greed, our lust, our envy, our jealousy. On and on it goes and turn to Him with our whole heart. Now, is it difficult for Him? Yes, it is, because look how carnal we are. Is it difficult for you as a physical parent? Yes, it is, because look at how carnal your kids are and how selfish they are. But you have to somehow come to have the skill and the persistence, the patience, the faith, the persistence to see to it that your children have the right attitude. Now, I can say this, and you can say that sounds like a lot of work, and it is. But how do you come to have that? You come to have that by studying this word carefully and thinking about the relationship between God and us as individuals, as a church, toward mankind as a whole, and recognize that He will not give up until the world is compliant, until it's meek and humble. He is going to kill over 90% of the inhabitants of this earth or allow Satan and man to do it. So much so, That if he did not cut it short, there would no flesh be saved alive. Now, that's how serious he is about it. Now, he has a plan. 
to bring those people back once they are humbled and meek and teachable. If we let it get out of hand when our kids were small and we let them become the terrible twos and the, you know, on and on it goes, the fearsome fours, if we allowed that, then we're way behind the eight ball already. And we've got a lot of making up to do. So our heads need to be in here learning what our relationship with God as our Father should be. And understanding the whole thing happening to the church today is about the Father-Son relationship. It's about us as His children responding to Him the way a child ought to a parent. And grasp that He is going to chasten us until it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. He will not let up until this happens. The sooner we give up and say, Yes, Father, I'll do it your way. I'll turn to you with my heart. Is when it's going to happen. So any session you have with your children, you have not finished until that child is humble and meek, compliant and loving and ready to give you a hug. How are we doing? We got work to do. So what does he say? Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. We don't want to be discouraged or give up and quit. He is going to continue this until we turn to Him in peace, love, and righteousness. And He says, don't just sit there and pity yourself. Self-pity is probably the most destructive human emotion there is. Sitting around and pitying, oh, poor me. Oh, poor me. Poor, poor me. You can't gain anything when you're in that attitude. So he says, lift up the hands and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. Straighten yourself out. Go the way you ought to go. And then God will let up. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. So, you got a broken leg. Stand up, straighten it out, let it be healed straight. Don't cripple along with whatever sins and faults and problems you have from now on, whatever attitudes we have. So he's talking about being physically lame here uh, in terms of our, our minds, our spirituality, if we're crippled spiritually, we don't stay that way. We straighten it out and then we can walk straight. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the eternal. Now, I mentioned specific sins earlier of all kinds that we might have. But here he adds an even stronger thing, does he not? Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the eternal. How we live among ourselves right here. If we cannot do it in holiness and peace, we're not going to be in the kingdom of God. This is a test case. Us. Right here.
How are we doing? Now, people complain once in a while if they're in a bad attitude. Well, there's no love around here. Now, that's hogwash. There's a lot of love around here. There is. Now, sometimes it isn't always as loving as it maybe ought to be, but there's a lot of love here. And if anybody tells me there's no love around here, they don't have any, obviously, to make the statement. And they're in a foul, bitter attitude, or they wouldn't be saying it in the first place. So they're not seeing the love that is here. Okay? But that doesn't mean that it's perfect love. Perfect love casts out all fear, and perfect love is perfect obedience to God. And we're certainly not there yet. So I don't want us to think that we aren't part of the family of God and that we don't have any love. Yes, we do. We need more. We need to live in peace better than we do. And we need to quit sniping and backbiting and chewing on each other in a wrong way uh, when we do. But God is not going to let up on the church. And most of the church is going to go all right on into the tribulation and die there. Do we understand that? Most of the church is going there. And we can go there with it. If we don't do what we're supposed to do. So are we going to go on crippled and giving God a half-hearted approach for which He spewed us out of His mouth? Or are we going to humble ourselves and meekly follow His ways and serve each other with love and kindness and respect and have holiness and peace with each other? By that shall men know that we are his disciples. That's how. There's a challenge here. It's for us to live together as siblings in peace and love and not fight among ourselves before our parent in heaven and our mother the church. And it is up to us as father and mother of our children to see that our children live together in peace with us. And you know what? It takes a lot of time and energy to rear children properly. And a great deal of that goes to mothers. Because it says if you... It brings the mother to shame if the child is disobedient, disrespectful, and rebellious. Because she's the one that works with them more on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute basis than does the father who is generally out in the field or at a job or whatever. A lot of it falls on us as mothers. A lot of it falls on the church. That's why I'm instructed to cry aloud and spare not and tell you what's wrong and then try to be patient and loving and kind and gentle with each as individual to help them overcome and change and grow in whatever ways they need to grow. That's what a mother does is point the children at the father in love and respect. So that's what we have to do as mothers of our children and as a mother of the church, which we're all part of, is point ourselves and each other to God. That's what it's all about. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and therefore many be defiled. Many were as a result of God's 
spewing the church out, becoming distrustful and bitter. Well, where's God? Well, God's always been there and He's not moved. Who did? We were not what we were supposed to be. That's just bottom line. And He is going to keep the pressure on until we become what we ought to be. And if you give up on your children and say, oh man, I'm tired of raising kids. I'm just, so, I'm just tired and weary. No, you, got, you had them. You did it. Now stick to it and be sure that they turn out the way they're supposed to turn out. And use the examples in here of how God goes about it. Yes, He's kind, He's loving, His mercy endures forever. But when the children don't have the right attitude, He's going to work unto us, on us until the attitude is right. And you know, every time you fall short of that, you make it just that much harder for the next time. If they get away with it once, they'll get away with it again. If they learn that you mean what you say, and they will not have privilege, and they will have pain, and they will have suffering until their attitude changes, then they will begin to respond in a loving, gentle, humble way. You know, the leadership even of the military understands that. Football coaches understand that. The first day you hit boot camp, they lay it on you. And you think life is going to end soon. A football coach who's worth his salt will do the same thing. The first day you run laps until you think the end of the world is coming. And you do calisthenics until you think you are going to die. And half of you don't come back the next day. His problem is half solved after one day. And he makes you think life is going to be hell on earth until you begin to be disciplined in the way that you play football or load your rifle or whatever it is. Man understands that to some degree. And we need to understand it. That God's rules are going to be kept throughout the universe, that His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven until it comes to be that way. There will be a thousand years of peace on this earth. It's not coming through the New World Order. It's coming through Christ and the Father's reign on this earth in the millennium. And before that can happen, 90% more or less will die. And the rest are going to suddenly have a certain amount of fear instilled. That if you don't keep the rules, you die. Then they'll say, which rules? What rules? Show me the rules. I want to know the rules. My brother's dead. My mother's dead. My dad's dead. My sister's dead. My wife's dead. My kids are dead. What are the rules? Oh, we can't live like we were living? No, can't do that anymore. You've got to live this way. All right. Which Bible? Show me the Bible. I want to know the rules. Egypt will say, it hadn't rained in years. Where's the feast? 
It will be enforced peace. There will be peace police. Isaiah 30, 21. You'll see your teachers. Peace will be enforced. That's the only way you can achieve peace. If you think you can have peace in your family between parents, mother and dad between themselves, and between the children themselves, and between you and your children, without the rules being enforced, you've got another thing coming. If you just try to be a friend always, you'll never have a peaceful family. It will not happen. Because friends allow each other to infringe upon the rules. God has not offered friendship to very many people in the history of the world. And He has only offered fatherhood to a few. We must grasp that. And be thankful for it. And when He chastens us, it may seem grievous at first... But are we, are we now beginning to be thankful that God has treated us as a master and as a father instead of always as a friend? Yeah, we were breaking the rules. Our heart was not right. And he's been working on us implacably now for a quarter century. How many are waking up? Not very many. 90%, even of the church yet, are going to go into the tribulation. That's how hard-headed, stiff-necked, and rebellious we are. Us, adults, converted Christians, that's how rebellious, stubborn, stiff-necked, and selfish we are to the core. Even yet. That 90% of us are going to have to die as martyrs in the tribulation. Now, we can't understand how our children are carnal and rebellious and don't want to do what they're told. <laughs> they're just like their parents. Maybe I should close that section right there in Hebrews 12. Let's go back to Proverbs chapter 4. Verse 1. Hear, you children, the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding. Even as little children, it says, we are known by the way that we are, the things that we do. So we as children of God and our children <coughs> physically have a responsibility to think about what their parents are trying to get across to them. Why do I keep running into problem with mom and dad? What is it about my attitude and my response to them that causes them to threaten to stand me in the corner, to bust my butt, or remove my privileges. What is it about my attitude that causes this? Our children don't need to be talking during church. They need to be listening, actually. Do we have to sit with our parents at all times, or can we pay attention? This is something I'm talking directly to you, and you're sitting there talking to each other. 
What's this all about? I think I'm done for the day.